From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Left to my own devices, I am just going to spend an entire hour just monologuing about how shit is fucked up and bullshit. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dara Lind, joined today not by my regular co-hosts, but in what is kind of a weird reverse-engineered Weeds Worldly crossover. I have commandeered Zach Beecham from the Worldly team and senior reporter at Vox to talk about refugees. Hello. Yes. Uh, one of our many uplifting crossover topics that our two podcasts like to talk about. We had Dara on yesterday to talk about the super exciting part of Trump's deals and his yes. trade deal and North Korea deal, which were both bad and also not very exciting and uplifting. So I feel like we're just in a depressive funk right now. Yeah. One, one of these days we will do a Weeds Worldly crossover that's about like the fight against global poverty and yeah. how things are getting better. And like, <laughs> It's funny that that's our uplifting topic. Global poverty. It's Everybody getting better. Be happy. It is. We'll get, we'll get Dylan on board. We'll like, it'll, you know, it'll be yeah. some good effect of altruism stuff. Anyway, in less happy news. You may have, have seen some stories kind of here and there about something that's going to be happening in the next month or so, uh, which is that, you know, at the end of September, you have the end of the fiscal year. And among the many things that the government has to do before the end of the fiscal year is to announce how many people it's going to bring to the United States as refugees to settle for the next fiscal year. That's something that the executive branch has to consult with Congress about, but that it's in the president's discretion to kind of set that level, that target, and then, you know, spend the next year deploying state and DHS resources to meet it. Shockingly, under the Trump administration, if you give the Trump administration a lot of leeway to do something that involves setting numbers of how many people are going to come to the United States and settle here, they have taken an extremely restrictive approach. After, of course, the travel and refugee ban of 2017, they set a cap for this fiscal year of 45,000 down from the 100,000 cap that was set at the end of the Obama administration. That was a you know record low. And for the coming year, the rumor is that the cap is going to be somewhere between twenty and 25,000. So, you know, a 75% reduction from where it was just two years ago. It, when was the last time the numbers were anything like that? Can anyone remember? It's never been anything like that. Yeah. Because, well, you know, if, if we're talking about the kind of 
the refugee structure that the U.S. has right now that really only dates back to 1980. You know, you obviously have refugee resettlement happening post-World War II, but kind of the, the U.S.'s global resettlement system gets set as we know it today in 1980. The post-World War II thing is important context because it wasn't just after World War II that the U.S. did massive refugee resettlement, right? After a variety of different conflicts during the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War are two really notable ones. The U.S. resettled a lot of people in the United States and a lot of people displaced by that conflict or who otherwise wanted to leave their country after the conflict came into the U.S. Right. There's always been kind of two overlapping purposes of this. And I think we're going to get into kind of the relationship between those two a, a little bit. That on the, the one hand, the U.S. has often used refugee resettlement as a way to address particular human rights crises that it sees as particularly bad, which often includes kind of dealing with the aftermath of global conflicts, such as dealing with refugees after the Vietnam War, or kind of taking a stand as to what particular groups it sees as most acutely oppressed. Right. On the other hand, though, there's also been this kind of global ideological commitment that the U.S. is going to be a global leader in refugee resettlement, that a substantial portion, somewhere between a third and a half historically, of all refugees who've been settled in what's called a third country, which means it's not just that they, like, flee across the border from their home country to another country and, you know, are kind of held there, but that there's a process where a far away more usually more developed country, actively selects them to permanently settle and start a new life where it's not expected that they're going to go back to their home country eventually. So the U.S. has has historically been a leader in that. uh, That is unsurprisingly changing under this administration. The other thing to kind of note, as long as we're talking about the top-level numbers, is that even though in theory the Trump administration said it was going to resettle about 45,000 people this year, right now they're on pace to resettle fewer than 25,000, more like 22. It's much less than the target that they've announced, and it's much more consistent with the number that they're settling this year. So there's been this very rapid decrease, uh, which means that both the kind of response to specific conflicts part of refugee resettlement and the symbolic global leadership are now kind of called into question. Right. And the symbolic global leadership is not a minor thing. No, it is not. <laughs> right. It's We use the word symbolic and, you know, that makes you think, oh, it's just like a gesture. It's not actually. The United States has a tremendous amount of political influence globally, obviously, but when it does things, even symbolic things, it sets a precedent that causes other countries to act in a similar fashion. So when the United States has been out front on refugee policy and has welcomed in huge numbers of people, the largest number, I believe, of any country on Earth post-World War II, by a Absolutely. significant margin. by a significant margin. Yeah, it's not like on the big balance sheet of good and bad things in American foreign policy, this one is definitely on on the good side. Uh, I I admit it's there's lots of ticks on both sides of that one. So when the U.S. backs down from this, other countries that aren't as wealthy or aren't as large are like, why should it be our job if the United States isn't doing it? And as a result, like you can't – I don't know of any studies that have proven this, Dara. Maybe you do. But – because maybe there's also never been a climb down like this by the United States from its global refugee leadership position in the past, right? We've never cut our numbers in half. Other right. I mean, there's a... there's kind of an asterisk here, which is that we did suspend refugee admissions after 9-11. Right. But the Trump administration's rationale has been kind of both security and this broader, we don't have a moral obligation to resettle, for example, Syrian refugees. Like, it is incumbent morally on the countries around Syria to be responsible for that. The Bush administration had the same kind of security. We need to make 
super double sure that everything is going right in this process. So that resulted in lower refugee admissions, but it wasn't paired with the ideological there's no moral reason for us to do this. That is something that you've never really heard the U.S. claim before, and that is super consistent with an America First view. It's a very pure expression of that. Why should we feel the need to take in the other people because of problems happening elsewhere? But it also really is a kind of unprecedented climb down. Yeah, like that's the core of America First, right, is – we talk about it as a doctrine, a, a political doctrine, right? Like a set of different policies that get put together into uh, this idea called America First. But it's also a moral idea. And it's this notion that the United States does not have moral obligations to people outside of its borders at all, pretty much. Whereas there's always this like deep philosophical debate about how much countries should care about people in other countries versus their own citizens and what sacrifices citizens should make for non-citizens. And it's complicated and philosophers have different views on it. I have a pretty extreme one in favor of non-citizens, but the Trump version of it is, is screw them basically, right? Like they're not our problem. And that is the core ideal of America first that informs all these other different policies, like not worrying about the Syrian civil war, letting Russia do whatever it wants there, or uh, closing our borders to refugees, or even trade policy to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of worth clarifying that this isn't something that the Trump administration is saying explicitly in terms of refugees. You're not seeing Stephen Miller or Trump himself coming out and saying, look, we're resettling fewer refugees because we don't think it's our job. There, in practice, what's happening is a slowdown and bottleneck because of these increased security requirements. There, the kind of consensus, although this is a relatively opaque process, is that the FBI has been tasked with doing some screening of refugees, and it's not clear what added resources the FBI has to do it. So there are, I mean, my understanding is we're talking about like tens of thousands, over a hundred thousand people who are somewhere in the pipeline that. If the Trump administration wanted to resettle 45,000 people this year, it could easily get to that number. But because of these added requirements, it's not. And so the philosophical core of the argument is there, and it's something that you occasionally hear Donald Trump say. It was there in his speech to the UN last yeah. year. But it's always hard with an administration that is making decisions on an ideological basis but is also changing the process in non-ideological ways to, you know, draw the line of causation. So what we're saying here is kind of the process of trying to figure out, uh, both on the part of the press and advocates for the last, like, year and a half, what the heck is going on with this system and what's happening. What's a lot more clear is the reaction that other countries are having to this, like what this is doing in the global context. And I kind of—you mentioned Syria, so I want to kind of take that as an opportunity to, to drill down, like— Syria is an ongoing refugee crisis, as we know, and it's the kind of thing where in the past the U.S., you know, Barack Obama made a big deal in the last two years of his administration of we have not been good enough at bringing in Syrian refugees. We have put very onerous requirements that essentially prohibit anybody who's, quote, unquote, who's like given a sandwich or a cigarette to a rebel group, I think was the line that I think Dick Durbin, Democratic senator from Illinois, used, like, we need to morally step up and do this. Obviously, the Trump administration is taking the opposite approach, and it seems that that is kind of influencing who has a say in what happens in Syria to begin with, right? 
Well, I think it's important just for context to understand the nature of the situation in Syria, both the conflict and where the refugees are, because there's this common misperception, I think, among a lot of people that most of them have gone into Europe. And that's not true, even though a huge percentage of refugees have gone to Europe. Most Syrian refugees, well, first of all, most of them are internally displaced inside Syria. The ones who are actual refugees, that is to say, outside of Syrian borders, are mostly in the neighboring countries surrounding Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, right, just generally in the, in the Middle Eastern range, particularly actual geographic borders. Now, the reason this matters is those countries are a lot smaller and a lot poorer than the United States. And so taking in a million refugees for the U.S. is one thing. Taking in a million refugees for Jordan or Lebanon is a completely different thing. I don't remember the exact numbers offhand, but like Turkey, I know, has over two million or has. And that's it's a tremendous, tremendous amount of responsibility for them to take. Second, it is likely about to get a lot worse. And the reason why is that the Syrian military, the government, has been winning in the civil war for a long time now. And they're right now beginning an offensive on Idlib, which is the last major city held by the rebels. And it has also become a locus for internally displaced people inside Syria. When people are evacuated from other places that uh, are being retaken by the government, they get sent to Idlib when they can't get out of Syria. So now there's three million roughly people surrounding Idlib. Many of them are civilians. The government has made it very clear that they are going to to go block by block if they need to, to retake it. And like that could, given all of the people living there, tremendously exacerbate the refugee and internally displaced problem. So it's the worst possible time for the United States to be backing off of its obligations on the refugee crisis. And yet that's what it's doing. Right. And at the same time, it seems like because the big geopolitical picture appears to be, while the government is winning the war, the war in Syria is about to end, that there is already talk of, okay, great, you know, all of these Syrian refugees who are currently in Lebanon and Turkey can like go right back now, that there's already talk of repatriation, which strikes me as kind of the other side of it. Not only are we about to see maybe more of an exodus, but there's more pressure to push people back. Right, which is worse uh, for a variety of different reasons. But the, the first big one is a lot of those people backed the rebels, or some of them did, or were involved with the rebels and might actually be killed or retaliated against by the government. Second, even those that didn't, uh, the vast majority of Syrian civilians were not really involved in the conflict. They were just civilians. The country is in shambles. Basically, every major city in the country has been a site of fighting and violence. Blocks are decimated. The you know the medical infrastructure in the country is destroyed. Uh, there's widespread food insecurity. The idea that all of these people can just come back with a government that can barely exercise control over its territory, let alone provide basic services, like that is a humanitarian crisis waiting to happen. We've already seen diseases presumed eradicated coming back into Syria. Now imagine there are millions of people coming back into the country with no capacity to take care of them. And you can see the scope of the problem if you try to repatriate people. Right. This gets into kind of one of the really hard questions of refugee and asylum policy, which is what is it that makes it okay for somebody to leave their country? And is that the same standard as when they can be sent back? Like the 
standard is generally when it is safe for them to return, they should do so. But that doesn't necessarily mean when the thing that prompted them to leave ends, right? right. Like there's a difference between, well, they left because of the Syrian civil war and the Syrian civil war is over and therefore their need to be refugees, their the other country's obligation to house them is has ended and the, well, they left because it wasn't safe for them to stay. What is the point of safety at which the obligation of another country ends? This is, it's a philosophical conversation that people rarely have directly, but we've seen over, one of the things that makes the current global refugee crisis distinct isn't just that we're dealing with a higher number of people who are displaced outside of their country, but that the time that someone typically spends as a refugee is increasing. We're dealing with a lot of people, and sub-Saharan Africa is actually like the place where this is most notable, even though that it doesn't often come up in the refugee conversation because there's not a massive new exodus as there is in Syria. But we're talking about people who are often refugees for years or decades, you know, people who were born in refugee camps who are now adults. The question of when it is safe to return and when a host country is obligated not just to kind of physically house people in a refugee camp, but to understand that, like, they're living there now and they need to have chances to be integrated, they need to have opportunities to live their lives, is a very live question in a lot of places around the world. And that's where the, you know, we come back to this question of what does it mean to have symbolic global leadership? So I want to take a break now. And then when we come back, we're going to drill into the question of like, what internationally is the U.S. doing and not doing? And how does it affect the way that these other countries are making their calculus? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. 
Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Let's talk about the International Organization for Migration. Okay, let's do um, that. Because it's, it's an organization that not a lot of people know about. It's not technically like the UN's. It's affiliated with the UN. It's not officially an arm of the UN. It's generally seen as kind of the international global infrastructure for migration management, right? There are a lot of like discrete projects that IOM is involved in. They're doing a lot of stuff in the Mediterranean. They're trying to do border management while monitoring the conditions in which migrants and refugees live. This is all preliminary to say that traditionally, the head of the international organization has been an American. That has been the case since the 1950s, and it is not the case anymore. And maybe we should talk about why that has happened. So the Trump administration nominated a guy. What is his name? Ken Isaacs. Ken Isaacs. Ken Isaacs has some, what's the right term, unsavory? I think unsavory views about Muslims and Islam, uh, where I believe at one point he referred to, uh, he was talking about a terrorist attack and said that the attackers were doing what Islam told them to or something along those lines is the precise quote. Yeah, exactly what the Quran demands of Muslims, I believe. Yeah. Uh, God. He, okay. um, Isaacs had been an official at the humanitarian Christian group Samaritan's Purse. He had done U.S. aid stuff under Bush. So, like, he has international relief cred, but the terrorists are doing what Islam tells them to do. He went to visit a Syrian refugee camp and came back saying, yeah, you know, it's people are really suffering and the U.S. should do things, but the security concerns are real. You know, I know what a fighter looks like, and I saw some men in these camps, and gee, it's really a good thing that we're vetting these people. <laughs> like For any It's Always Sunny listener or viewers in the Weeds audience, he basically conducted one of Mac's patented ocular pat-downs and decided that all of these refugees were, were threatening. I'm laughing because it's so goddamn depressing. <laughs> you know, and he'd also said that he didn't believe that climate change played any role in, you know, creating migration or refugees, which— Obviously, that makes sense in the context of he's an American conservative, but in the context of international migration management, when there are cases of populations that are being displaced because of rising sea levels, does that mean that he would have been so ideologically blinkered as to not necessarily recognize that as a problem? So anyway, that turned out to be important enough that the countries that voted on the next leader were willing to kind of toss aside several decades of precedent and elected a former Portuguese minister who'd actually worked with Antonio Guterres, who is the current secretary general of the UN. So as kind of a symbolic global leadership thing, how big a deal is this? That seems tremendously important to me. <laughs> I mean, it's decades and decades and decades of precedent of the United States running this organization. And the, the precedent was tied to the U.S. staking itself out ideologically as the global leader on refugee issues, well, the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, right? That those two things are inextricably intertwined. And it was one of the reasons why the U.S. had control over the IOM and thus control over a significant or at least got its people to be in control of the IOM yeah. and, and thus had real influence over a significant part of international migration policy. But now 
people don't trust the United States because of these symbolic actions, because of the way the Trump administration acts, and because of the kind of people that it elevates to its top positions on immigration and global migration. And so the U.S. loses a tangible point of leverage having a person that it can choose in charge of a major international organization because of these symbolic actions and because of the partisan proclivities of the administration. So it matters symbolically and it also matters on a very clear and real practical level because it hurts American influence. Right. It kind of does cut both ways, right? Because in theory, you've seen some pieces about this transnational nationalist rise, right? These deliberate alliances between Vladimir Putin and Marine Le Pen in France and, you know, Steve Bannon going over and, you know, trying to be a big advisor to Viktor Orban in Hungary, this network of people who are trying to create more support for populist nationalism in their own countries by bolstering each other up. And part of the authority that the U.S. has ceded is authority to to boost that alliance on the international stage. It was kind of assumed that if Ken Isaacs had been elected head of IOM, that that would be very good for people like Viktor Orban, who's been doing a lot of really aggressive border militarization and closure, trying to keep refugees from coming in. Yeah, I actually was just there a few months ago at the southern border uh, between Hungary and Serbia, which during the heights of the refugee crisis was the major – one of the major transit points from Asia into the EU because Serbia is not an EU country and Hungary is. So once you got into Hungary, you were in the EU and you could go where you wanted to go in the EU. So a lot of people would go into Germany or Austria and settle there. Very few actually stayed in Hungary in part because their government hates refugees and hates Muslims and it's not quiet about it. But when you're at the border – I mean, Orban built a wall between himself and the southern border while Trump was still a joke candidate in most people's eyes. Right. And you can tell, right? Like this is – it's very heavily militarized. There are guards – there's a a giant building that is like a transit place where refugees stay, which is apparently awful on the inside. There are two uh, migrants who are sleeping outside in the dirt in like a really dirty old tent because they needed to be available 24-7 as translators. And the government hoped that would allow them to jump the line. When I tried to take pictures of the border fence, uh, guards stopped me. Like armed guards were like, you need a journalism permit, which is a ridiculous thing to do in a liberal democracy. And I was on Serbian soil at the time, right? So they couldn't actually threaten me. But this is the degree of border militarization that you have now in Hungary and that people like Orban are trying to institute globally, right? If Trump were to build his wall, presumably you would see somewhat similar levels of border militarization in the United States. And I mean, arguably, depending on where you are, you do. But yeah. Um, Fair enough. Um, (laughs) But it, it just like, Going from what our migration policy has been historically to that and that being the kind of migration policy that you want to have is a massive, massive, massive shift. Right. I think the big difference here is that people who don't closely follow this don't tend to be aware of how built up the U.S.-Mexico border already is. Like Trump brags about building his wall because the assumption is that the U.S.-Mexico border is somehow underprotected. Viktor Orban, on the other hand, this is very central to his whole political project, and it's something that he talks about a great deal as preserving the existential character of the country. And it's also worth noting that this happened in response to a very acute refugee crisis, right? Right. That people were 
actively coming in and actively being shut down. As much as the biggest critics of the Trump administration on immigration both tend to talk about, you know, the Central American refugee crisis as a problem. As a matter of scale, the Central American refugee crisis is nothing. The stuff that Viktor Orban is doing was doing in 2015 made the difference between thousands of people a day coming in and, you know, nobody or near nobody coming in. They, was, let, they let something like one family a day interview to go across, something like that, according to the people I talked to at the border. It does make a difference in kind of day-to-day acute humanitarian crises. Uh, and so kind of continuing to globe hop, I, I want to talk about a region that currently is in that kind of humanitarian crisis uh, with Venezuela. Right. Where if you haven't been following uh, the country's kind of economic collapse has continued at – honestly – the country has been in economic freefall for a long enough time that you would think it would no longer be an economic freefall, and yet it still is. No, it just keeps getting um, worse. The Maduro government, you know, is intermittently cracking down on protesters in a really problematic way. They had an earthquake last week. The exodus from the country, which has been ongoing, is now just massive. And so as a response, neighboring countries are beginning to do kind of a quasi-Hungarian thing. The Brazilian government is sending its military to the border with Venezuela. The Peruvian government shut down crossings to anybody who didn't have a passport, which, like, seems reasonable from a U.S. perspective. But when you're talking about refugee requirements, the idea is that you're supposed to be able to allow people to just pick up and leave because they're in humanitarian danger. Ecuador tried to do something similar, but a judge shut it down because there's kind of an intra-South American agreement on free movement that Venezuela may or may not be involved in. A refugee camp across the border in Peru got burned down and people were forced to return. By vandals or by the government? By vandals. But it's it's kind of an illustration. The, these two things often play off each other, right? right? You often do hear people kind of in the countries to which refugees are fleeing going, we have all, too many problems ourselves. There is, you know, literally, and I'll put this in show notes, a Peruvian villager interviewed by the BBC said, look, I feel bad for them, but... Every Venezuelan who comes here takes a job from a Peruvian. And you don't necessarily expect individual people to be like, yes, I will happily take my starving village and bring more people to it. In theory, that's the role that governments and particularly international organizations are supposed to play. And so we should probably take another break. And then I kind of want to talk about what America could in theory be doing in Venezuela and what is and isn't happening in terms of international pressure. With some bonus Israel-Palestine content thrown in. bonus Israel-Palestine content, yes. Mostly Palestinian. Yes. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So in theory... The U.S. has taken the position that refugee crises are a regional problem, that they are not a global problem, that it is the responsibility of neighboring countries and other countries in, you know, the the rich countries that are nearby to take in more refugees. Trump often kind of make passing comments on the campaign trail about how Saudi Arabia is rich and okay, they're taking so more Syrians. This is bullshit. I just I, I want to stop you yeah. there, right? Like. By any standard where that is the policy, the United States is in the Americas region. Like the U.S. is not not responsible for Latin America if you look at the history of the United States yes, as right. a place. Yes, right. Exactly. And that's kind of why I'm bringing this in now because there isn't a lot of movement toward recognizing, you know, Venezuelans are asking for asylum in the U.S. in increasing numbers just like they're fleeing to everywhere else in the region. And there hasn't been an uptick in Venezuelans being granted asylum. There isn't a move to make sure that, you know, the U.S. is putting more effort on the ground to vet and bring in refugees, you know, in surrounding countries. The things that the U.S. has said it doesn't have to do in the Middle East with Syria, in theory, could be things that it could be doing. In Latin America. Right. And and not just Venezuela, where you could make a case, well, it's far away from us or whatever if you want to be obnoxious. Or you have closer countries like El Salvador, like Mexico, that have huge homicide rates. And the people in regions affected by drug violence, gang violence, those people might want to flee to the United States and I think could very plausibly be considered refugees from violence. And the Trump policy isn't just let's not take people like that as much as we can, as far as I understand it. It is to actively discourage them from coming to the United States. Yeah, there's a problem that you often see with refugee crises where under the guise of sober-minded policymaking, officials say, well, we need to tackle the root causes. And that sounds great. Yeah, obviously you want to create a world where people aren't, you know, being forced to flee. And it's especially important in cases like Central America where instead of having kind of one thing like in Syria with the civil war, you have a mix of economic deprivation, day-to-day gang violence, you know, often domestic violence and like women's rights issues thrown in there. What drives people to flee is this complicated mix of factors. And so, yeah, if you can change some of those factors, then you can reduce the calculus that makes people say, it's easier for me to flee the country and possibly risk my life than it would be to stay. But if that is happening in the absence of And here is what we're doing to help people who have already made the decision to flee or, you know, while we're tackling the root causes, here's what we're doing. It can become kind of a, well, we have no obligation to deal with the consequences of this problem because we're trying to preventively solve it. It's the way of saying, well, we're taking the galaxy brain approach to this, but not necessarily 
moving up from the elementary, all right, what needs to happen now? Yeah. And even cases like Syria, right? Like the Civil War in Syria is one of the most complicated things on earth. And even if the rebels lose after this Idlib offensive, which is quite plausible, there's still a conflict in the north where Syrian Kurds have claimed a bunch of territory that the Syrian government previously held, and who knows if they'll try to retake it. ISIS has been killing more people and making a comeback uh, in eastern Syria and western Iraq. And, like, you have these conflicts that nobody can solve or nobody wants to solve. Afghanistan has been going on forever. Civil wars in, in a variety of different other regions are just intractable. And so if you literally cannot solve the root cause of the conflict because – or the root cause of people's displacement because of state failure, because of a civil war that nobody has the military resources or the capability to intervene in uh, or the will to intervene in, then you're not solving the root causes and you're not going to ever. And that means – like you have to wait until the conflict ends somehow naturally. I, I'm using air quotes here because naturally means after horrific violence and millions of people displaced – and in that situation, saying we're just going to wait until the root cause is solved, it actively harms people under the guise of thinking big. And it's yes. offensive in that way. There are really complicated problems of international law and policy here, which stem from the fact that the Refugee Convention defines refugee in a much narrower way than someone who is in danger if they stay in their country. That's it's a good point. Everything that we have built up over the last several decades is a reaction to the Holocaust. The Refugee Convention thinks very closely about persecution as a more specific thing than just danger and goes so far as to kind of lay out specific categories of people who are likely to be persecuted and whose persecution qualifies them to be refugees, which is what U.S. refugee and asylum law is built on, which is something that I've written a lot about in the Central American context because it's hard to map the kind of Holocaust definition of state-based persecution of people based on immutable characteristics onto people who are worried because their children are being targeted by gangs. Like, it, right. there's there's a whole lot of instability, even mortal peril, that isn't encompassed by the legal definition. And that's something that the global community is beginning to recognize. The hard problems here, things like the disconnect between the legal definition of refugees and the characteristics that are actually driving people to flee, things like what do you do with long-term displaced populations in host countries like Lebanon that don't necessarily have the resources to kind of absorb them, those are things that the international community understands there's a role for them in both kind of the short and long term. Like short term wise, uh, we, we should get this bonus Palestine content in uh, because that's kind of a, a really good case where the global community has recognized that they're the ones that need to step in and fill this gap, right? Right. There are millions of people who are – I don't want to use any – God, any verb involving Israel-Palestine is fraught. So people who left their homes or were forced out of their homes during the 1948 war, uh, the Israeli War of Independence or the Palestine War, depending on who you talk to, or the Nakba and Palestinian terminology, those people and their descendants are living in – some in the Palestinian territories, Gaza and the West Bank, and some in surrounding countries like Jordan and Lebanon – and they're just living in these camps, right? And in some of these countries, they have citizenship rights, and some of them they don't. 
most of them are extremely poor and extremely dependent on this organization, uh, a branch of the UN called UNRWA, that is responsible for providing them not only with immediate basic humanitarian assistance, but also jobs training, schooling, right? Like the things that you need to be a functional person. And this has been going on for decades. Like UNRWA is not uh, like a, you know, last 10 years invention. But the U.S. government has decided that it does not want to fund UNRWA anymore. And I believe the exact quote that was attributed to Jared Kushner's office was that the organization has fostered a culture of dependency among Palestinians, which is just an extraordinary phrase for people who have to live in refugee camps because there's literally nowhere to go because their homes are now lived in by other people. Right. right. And because it, they, you know, may or may not have citizenship rights or, you know, the hard long term problems is how do you tell a Jordan or a Lebanon that it is their job to give work permits to these people to bring them into the market when it's just as easy for them to keep them in camps and say it's the UNRWA's responsibility to feed to like feed and shelter them. And not only that, right? Like they partially ideologically don't want to. There's an underlying political conflict here where let's take Lebanon as it's an easier case given its fraught relationship with Israel. The Lebanese government is never gonna say uh Palestinians should live here forever. Um because – and the the conflict is settled. They are never going back to Israel. Right. right? Because like the, one of the major points of contention is the so-called right of return for Palestinian refugees to go back either directly into territory their, or houses their family occupied or just – you know, into is what's now Israel proper, the West Bank or something like that. And like that's a big part of peace negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians and Lebanon and Jordan, et cetera, have ideological stakes right. in those. Which comes back to the, the role of the UN and other international organizations because the assumption is that you're always going to have domestic politics being in conflict with, you know, international relations just on the nation-to-nation basis, and that having transnational organizations that can provide some kind of, you know, either a more disinterested analysis or going for global interest or just the repeat player game of being like, okay, we're going to step in and represent human rights here so that you guys can step in and represent human rights when it's, you know, elsewhere and you're trying to move beyond the interests of other countries that you don't, you know, whose interests you don't find particularly compelling. That is a role that the UN typically plays. And there is an effort to solve a lot of these refugee problems. The UN is about to ratify a global compact on refugees that's been worked on for the last several years, the U.S. has unsurprisingly pulled out of under the Trump administration. And while they're still trying to figure out what the actual accountability mechanisms for it are, and it's assumed that it's going to be relatively non-binding anyway, the problems they're trying to solve are the problems that are kind of that have come up over our conversation about this. They're trying to deal with easing pressure on host countries. They're trying to find ways to encourage refugee self-reliance. They want to expand access to third country resettlement. That's a like, you know, very high priority. In 2019 to 2021, apparently, there's going to be this big international organization for migration-led push to expand third country resettlement options. And they want to do the kind of root causes promoting conditions of safety. But it's going to be the first post-refugee convention understanding that refugees are a global problem and that there are international obligations to fix it. And the U.S. is just not there. Yeah, I want to stitch a few parts of this conversation together, right? Because we have pulling out 
of the global compact on refugees. We have slashing the number of refugees that the United States is going to officially resettle per year. We have defunding UNRWA and assistance for Palestinians. We have the U.S. losing its bid for uh, nominating someone to run the IOM. Like when you put all of those things together, it's not just one incident of right. the U.S. saying, you know, shirking its obligation to refugees. It is a concerted policy of the United States saying this is not our problem with an underlying ideological lens along the lines of what we were talking about mm -hmm. at the beginning. And in the case of IOM, the world's recognizing it and reacting as such to marginalize the United States from traditional positions of leadership. It is a loss for the refugees. It is a loss for the United States, which not only doesn't get people who could work here, contribute to the economy, bring great food, which has actually happened with previous refugee waves. That's why if you go to Louisiana, the Vietnamese food is really good. Setting that aside, I know that's a trivial part of refugee resettlement, but it speaks to the cost, the sort of day-to-day -day cost of xenophobia. You have the United States losing influence and losing positions of, of connection with other countries that it might otherwise want to work with on solving major global problems. This is just, I mean, cruel is the obvious word, but idiotic is the other one. Right. Like there are two very, very distinct outcomes here. It is possible that the U.S. retreat clears the space for somebody else to step in, right? Like in the post-Cold War context, the American role as like being a beacon of freedom in the world was not – it was a little more complex, but it was still kind of there. It was obviously central to the neocon vision of the world that America has the right and obligation to make sure that democratic values move abroad. Right. It could be possible that another country could step in on that. You know, there's as much domestic back and forth as there's been in Germany on the question of how it's treating its refugee population. Angela Merkel, at least rhetorically, is still – saying that there is an obligation to accept refugees. You know, she's she, baseline. She is acknowledging that that obligation exists. And so there is a world where, you know, a Germany or a Canada who under Justin Trudeau has made a big deal out of kind of expanding its settlement of Syrian refugees in particular could step in and fill that role. That would, like Zach is saying, reduce the U.S.'s capacity to get other countries to do what it wants and other things, especially in the context of the U.N., where even though there is an American America first agenda. It's not like the U.S. doesn't have U.N. interests. It's not like the U.S., for example, isn't really enthusiastic about, you know, defending Israel against a general assembly that often doesn't see that as a very important priority, to say the least. The other possibility is that there isn't a country that steps in and sees that as its role, that you have, you know, something where either China becomes the de facto global leader on other issues, and China, to say the least, isn't particularly concerned with human rights in other countries, or there just isn't a country that is stepping up on the international stage and saying there is an obligation here. That means that people like the Secretary General of the UN, institutions like the International Organization for Migration, are trying to corral a bunch of national leaders none of whom want to do anything. That's not a very good model for international governance. And it means that when things like Venez the Venezuelan regional crisis happen, no one's around to tell the president of Brazil, hey, yes, this is a really tough problem. Here are some things we're going to do to help you out. Maybe sending your troops to the border isn't the right answer. There isn't going to be anyone who's actually going to put any pressure on 
governments that choose to respond to crises by closing their borders, by cracking down on the people who are coming in. Neither of these seems like a great outcome from the United States kind of role in the world perspective. The question, though, is, is this something that the Trump administration cares about? Are they going to miss having that clout on the world stage? Or is the premise of America first really that it doesn't actually matter whether they can get votes in the U.N. anymore? Uh, I don't think they know. I Honestly, this isn't – while this has ideological underpinnings and there is like a moral sort of basic doctrine that underlies it, it's not thought out. It's not like, OK, three steps down the line, we're going to lose influence as a result of this. So maybe it's a bad idea or here's how we regain influence or here's our backup plan. It honestly seems to be more an outgrowth of domestic ideology than anything else. Like look at the language that mm-hmm. they use. Like this phrase culture of dependency that Kushner's office used to describe Palestinians traditionally is used as an argument against welfare policies for African Americans in the United States. Right. And that policy also has roots in in the Republican ideological shift in favor of a hardline pro-Israel position, which has happened over the course of the last – 20 and especially 10, 15 years, right? That That's surprisingly new for a lot of people who haven't been following that issue really closely. Um, and also the IOM nominee, uh, he reflects very particular strains in the American Christian mm-hmm. community, which has grown increasingly anti-Muslim in a way that it wasn't, again, 15 years ago during the George W. Bush administration. And all of this speaks to the fact that American domestic politics uh, and particularly partisan and ideological commitments of the Republican Party are defining things that used to be bipartisan elements of foreign policy, that used to be cross-party commitments as to how we treat refugees and how we think about America's place in the world. And it's all now becoming unglued. And so it's not just a Trump question, though Trump has brought the issue to the fore. The question is how long? Does the Republican Party think and act like this? And does it permanently destabilize America's commitment to refugees and solving international problems? Right. And those two questions are actually more independent than they seem, right? It might seem that, okay, yeah, Trump's in office and maybe in theory Donald Trump is succeeded by another Republican and then we're going to continue down this road. But maybe Trump will lose in 20 or 2024 or or rather Trump will win in 2020, but another Republican nominee will lose in 2024. And then, you know, America will be back on the same track it was on under Obama and previously to that. That's not how global influence works. Like, I think that the, the election of Obama and the kind of surge of goodwill that that created in a lot of other countries kind of was an unrealistic expectation as to how you get influence back after having a leader who a lot of country, other countries dislike, uh, because that's generally not, you know, generally it requires kind of building back trust in a gradual sense. And specifically in terms of refugee and refugee resettlement policy, you know, this is a specific policy infrastructure in the United States led by non-governmental organizations, that if there aren't refugees being resettled, people are losing grant money, people are losing their jobs. There have already been some local organizations that have had to cut staff. Uh, National organizations have also had to cut staff. Some locals have had to shut down. The extent to which it is going to be really hard for 
a future, you know, President Elizabeth Warren or whatever to throw the doors open and say this year we're resettling 100,000 refugees again can't really be overstated. It's not as simple as they're keeping people out and the next president can welcome people in. It's that the U.S. has built up this entire system so that it can absorb tens of thousands of refugees a year. If that system is dismantled, the absorbent capacity will no longer be there. And whether or not that's deliberately something that anyone is thinking about, whether or not it's even something that everyone in the Trump administration would want, it's lasting and it's not going to happen in any dramatic way. There's not going to be like a coronation ceremony where, you know, Justin Trudeau is crowned, you know, global king of refugees <laughs> um, or anything he like would that. Love that. Oh, though. my God, would he love that? Obviously, it's not. As I was saying earlier, it's not totally clear that that's something that he's going to be able to step in and do. But it's one of the things that I think is going to be the most lasting, both in foreign and domestic policy, legacies of this administration, just because it's so hard to build that back up once you've torn it down. And Worldly has a house policy of not ending with on that depressing note, but apparently, but the weeds does not. So on that, you know, depressing <laughs> That's note. That's because I do it. I say it too much. I say it like every episode because the world is depressing. So uh, you should join the weeds Facebook group and put good news in there. It's a three day weekend. So there, I'm sure there will be a lot of discussions. It's a very lively place to be. Strongly recommend joining that. Tell your friends to listen to The Weeds and other Vox Media podcasts to learn more about the world in which they live and the ways in which it may or may not be totally screwed. Thank you very much to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, to our producer, Bridget Armstrong, to our social and engagement team, and we will see you on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more strengthen security posture, and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.